All right, welcome everybody to another episode of the Interventional Endoscopist Podcast uh, interview series, and I'm your host, Munkovel Suchdave. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing a friend of mine, Dr. Sunil Amin, who is currently the system-wide director of interventional endoscopy at the University of Miami, and he is also the program director uh, for uh, the Advanced Endoscopy Fellowship and the director of Advanced Endoscopy. So, Sunil, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. It's looking forward to it. Yeah. So Sunil and I first met just uh, by chance. Actually, I've been following him on Twitter for over a year. And so he's, you know, he and I have been commenting on some of the same things. And then in, I think it was August of this, uh, of 23, we had the opportunity to meet at a fellows course uh, in Chicago with Boston Scientific. And we struck off, a, we had a good conversation and we were talking about the podcast. And, uh, you know, I realized that he's been pretty instrumental in developing the practice of G-POEM, especially in his region, but also nationally. And I thought it'd be kind of a nice topic to talk about because uh, it is a growing field. Um, so, you know, you know, before we get into that, though, just a little bit about his background. Um, you know, Sunil was um, a medical resident and GI fellow at Mount Sinai, and he was an advanced fellow at Columbia at New York. Um, Sunil, uh, welcome again, and let's let's start off by talking a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, yeah, so I grew up in Canada, Vancouver, um, and then uh, went to college at Columbia, stayed in New York forever. Uh, like you said, went to residency and, and fellowship and, and uh, medical school at Columbia as well, residency fellowship at Mount Sinai, uh, advanced at, at Columbia, and then just kind of hung around. Um, after that, I ended up in Seattle at Virginia Mason for a couple of years and in 2019 moved to Miami. Um, yeah, you know, couldn't be happier. Things are going well. Yeah. Are, is your, uh, are your parents still in Vancouver? They are. My parents are still in Vancouver. They're both retired physicians. Uh, yeah. My father's a family practice doc. My mother's a child psychiatrist. Yeah. Must have been nice to be in Vancouver at that time when you can just go back and forth over the border. But uh the uh yeah now in warmer weather with less rain and more sunshine i guess so <laughs> trade off trade off yeah so how, how'd you i mean so what kind of prompted your decision i mean if you talk about your early years uh, neil was my last person i interviewed and we joked around about you know becoming physicians because that's kind of the indian thing you're you're told in the womb that you're going to be a doctor especially when both right. your parents are physicians but yeah. how did you end up uh going through the medical system how do you decide to do gastroenterology medicine that sort of thing what brought you down that pathway yeah no you know it's, i wish i could say it's something special but it's exactly what you mentioned you know <laughs> in chicken with both my parents as doctors that you know from an early age i had a little white coat walked around followed my dad around and yeah. you know and they just ingrained it into my head that that's what's going to happen and so <laughs> uh you know i tried to sway a little bit in college i majored in economics i thought i was going to kind of go to wall street mania leave that door open but um you know then i uh, I applied to medical school, got in, and I was overjoyed and uh, you know, happy at this point. I think one of my friends in med school put it best when I was having second thoughts. He said, could you really imagine yourself doing anything else? As frustrating as yeah. it is, you know, when we do this, I, I really could. You know, yeah. Um, in terms of GI, you know, I always, I think like a lot of us, wanted to do something procedural, um, but also wanted to have that cognitive aspect of it. And for me, it was kind of between ENT and GI that, EMT, I kind of did a sub-eye in it, and it was just these tiny little fields and things like that. It's microsurgery, and, and GI just felt so much easier to understand. You know, with the, yeah. With the plumbing, right? So, 
Yeah, yeah, and I think it's actually interesting because uh, in the last interview, if I, if I recall correctly, Neil uh, was saying that he was also interested in ENT versus GI, and that's so funny. yeah, so it makes sense because you know I, I do think a lot of us who have that inkling to go into the medicine slash GI world, we do like the ability to talk to patients. Not that the surgeons don't, but you know we we tend to be more fifty fifty. I think clinical and, yep. and uh, procedurals versus some fields where it's you know a broken knee, have hammer. Okay. And so how about some of the mentors that maybe influenced your decision to go GI and specifically therapeutic endoscopy? Yeah. So, um, you know, when I started doing GI, obviously, uh, you know, one of my, uh, attendings told me not to get seduced by the scope. I remember that (laughs) Uh, IBD attending. Uh, but of course I did. And I knew, (laughs) I, I think I knew early on, um, you know, that I wanted to do interventional. And so I kind of did my research around that. But some of my early mentors were um, Dr. Michelle Kim, who um, was really instrumental. She's now a chief at Cleveland Clinic. Um, gentleman named Harold Flipfrucht, who is kind of a, a kind of a GI uh, syndrome type person at, at Columbia. These are people that kind of took me under the wing early and kind of got me into GI research. Um, but then once I started doing procedures, really um, one of my biggest mentors was Chris DeMayo at Mount Sinai and kind of really encouraged me um, in terms of going into advanced endoscopy. Um, and I matched at Columbia, which was, you know, really where I wanted to be. Uh, Amrita Sethi, obviously, is just a, you know, a visionary advanced endoscopist, incredibly talented, you know, really most impressed person I've ever really seen scope. And so I, I wanted to learn from her. And, and luckily, I was able to spend a year with her. Um, and so, you know, to this day, I think a lot of us who did their interventional fellowships, those mentors are kind of the ones that stick with you, you know, as we move to our practice. So she's kind of the person I rely on most today. Yeah. Um, same with, uh, actually I was fortunate enough. I think we'll talk about this later, but I was able to go to Prague, do my third space training with a gentleman named John Martinick. He really is a kind of my second endoscopic mentor. So I have a little situation. Yeah. yeah I mean, the, the mentor thing is, is amazing because even, you know, I, I, I finished my advanced year in 2010 and I still hear in my ear sometimes during a challenging ERCP, John Martin's voice, or during an EUS or or another ERCP, maybe Sri Kamanduri or Raj Kaswati's voices. You, it's 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 kind of freaky because you know, you're like it's been 14 years since I've been in the same procedure room as these guys, but their voices still kind of echo in your head when you're doing things, and um, it you know it means mentors are super important in this field. And then you know the only thing about uh, Dr. DeMeo, which I. I I love one thing that he did was when I became the program director of an international fellowship, um, we had these program director meetings through ASGE and he was pretty active in them. And he was the only guy of a group of about 40 or 50 international program directors that actually had a typed out and written like uh, syllabus for his fellows. Like this is what we're going to teach in the first month. This is what we're going to teach in the second quarter. And um, I actually, when we started our program, I emailed him, he shared that with me and it really helped us kind of, plan our fellowship properly. So, I mean, he was super organized with that stuff. So hopefully he's still doing it, but he was, he was doing a great job. Yeah, I know. He was a, always a great teacher. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about that. I mean, you brought up the topic of G-Poem and that's kind of something that we're going to speak about. Um, let's, let's start about, start off with your journey of how you developed the program and, and, and we can go back to your, your training that you were talking about with Dr. Martin over there. And so let's, let's. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I guess, you know, not just G-Poem, but Palm as well. And really all just kind of throw space stuff, ESD, Palm, G-Palm. And, and I think it's, it's interesting because I, I talked to a lot of 
people that graduate advanced fellowship today. And, and I, you know, right after advanced fellowship, all I wanted to do was EOS ERCP. I wanted to get really good at that. All I wanted to do was cannulate native papillus by myself and needle knife by myself without anyone around and just kind of learn those skills that I didn't feel like I fully got during advanced fellowship because, um, you always had someone take the scope for you and it was time to needle knife, right? Unless you got that big bulging stone there and I mean, like, but that was it. And, um, you know, I watched a lot of third space cases. Amrita was really building her poem practice, but I, I didn't have that much hands-on at that time. Her time went the scope. Um, and so, you know, right away, that was my itch to, to do that, to really get good at ERCP in the U.S. And, um, you know, I didn't really have an opportunity to, to explore third space at Virginia Mason because someone was already doing that. I did a lot of time at a community hospital where you're trying to build up the advanced stuff there. So that kind of satisfied my itch. And then as I got to Miami... There was a big void. There was really no one in the city doing third space stuff. And I think that's how a lot of it starts. And it's a huge city and there was a huge opportunity there for me. But um, the question then was, how do I, how do I start? You know, right. How do I do this safely, responsibly? Um, and, and not only that, how do I get the patient? So right. um, I reached out to my mentor. That's the first thing I did and said, you know, this is what I want to do. And you should support me because, um, you know, I'd done these cases with her at Columbia and I know she kind of wanted me to follow in her footsteps to some degree. Um, and what we decided to do was have me apply for the ASG endoscopic training award, which okay. is a, uh, they, give, they give it to three people every year. I think my year they, they give you something like five or $10,000 to basically go somewhere international and learn whatever you want to learn, whether it be, you know, third space, whether it be, I don't know, anything advanced endoscopy. So I wrote this proposal and you have to apply with the mentor mm -hmm. and, you know, she obviously has contacts, you know, all throughout the world. She has lots of these lab courses. And, um, she said, you know, who I think would be great is Jan Martinek in the Czech Republic. And, um, you know, it's maybe somewhere that you can get hands-on experience. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there, there was some discussion about maybe going to England or you know Japan and these types of things, but you don't really get hands-on experience there. And so that was really what what clinched it for me and he was just the nicest man he, he was so welcoming to me and he you know, wrote up this grant together i submitted it and i was lucky enough to, to get the award um, yeah and it was i was new enough in miami that it was within uh, it was right right during COVID. i think i got the award in february COVID happened in march of 2020 okay. and then we were kind of trying to figure out what month i could go and so we kept pushing it back um and it ended up going in october november when there was like a window of time when there was like, you know, no, it was kind of safe to travel. And as soon as I got there, Prague went on lockdown and I was like kind of pretty much confined to like <laughs> my little Airbnb and going to the hospital and just kind of finding the one you need a restaurant around the corner and just taking take it home. <laughs> um, but, but in, in any case, so that, that was how it happened. Um, but the experience was really kind of second to none. Um, what we did was Dr. Martinic has a tracker. He's published on third space and teaching poem. And they're the highest volume center in Prague because there's not a lot of people that do poem, as you can imagine, in Prague and, and especially in the Czech Republic. So everyone from around the country gets referred there. They've done, you know, I think almost over a thousand poems at this point. They do well over a hundred year. They've been doing it for seven or eight years. Um, and so, you know, he was really at the point in his career where he, he's ready to teach and train and he doesn't need to do it for himself anymore and so it worked out really well because the way he approached it was um we do a lot of pig labs we do a lot of training on pig labs already we move on to live you know human cases and 
So what we did was as soon as they got there, we basically did 10 poems on live pigs, you know, right. and it, with each pig, you can do four tunnels. You can do anterior, posterior, kind of lateral. You could do up there. The pig esophagus is very, very long. And so you could very, you could do a couple tunnels and then, um, that was what we did to kind of get the initial skill. And then eventually, you know, he, we, we, he would do maybe two or three a week. And so I was there for four weeks. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I just shut down my practice in Miami and I went there and my chief was supportive. Let me do that. I just took a bunch of vacation early on. Um, my wife was like 30 weeks pregnant at the time. So this was my one opportunity to go before <laughs> I was like locked down. You know, I was our second kid. So I, we took a gamble. It worked out. Oh, wow. um, but, uh, but, you know, it was good. So I did all these poems on pigs. Um, and then, and then I started watching him and, and we would do it methodically. So he would, First, I would just learn to close. And this is how I teach my fellows now. You know, we would just close the mucosotomy of clips out for the first case. And then I would do a little bit of the dissection. And then I would do a little bit of the myotomy. And then, you know, by the end, I did a poem start to finish, you know, faithfully with his supervision. Um, and that was really just that. And that that was what we were hoping would be the outcome by the end of the month, you know. And so that, that worked out really well. Um, and then I got back to Miami and I was like, I'm ready to go. Luckily, we have a pig lab in Miami. And so I was able to keep doing what he taught me. You know, every month I would go to the pig lab and, and do all these titles, do all these poems. Um, and th- and th- I mostly focused on poem, not really cheap poem at this point. Right. Because um, that was just kind of what the need was that I was trying to learn. And cheap poem was still a little, you know, four years ago, three years ago, still a little, it hadn't really caught on as much. So I did that. Um, and then I was like, okay, I'm ready to go. But now I need the patience. And I came back in in November. But I didn't do my first poem until April, and I, I was able to line up three on the same day. Um, and Amrita came down and proctored me. Gotcha. And that was what we, you know, what we decided with the university is the safest way to do it, and what we, we you know, me and Amrita thought was the safest way to do it as well. And so we did those three cases in a day, always scheduled for the day. Took my time, and they were really hard <laughs> type three cases, but. Um, but that's what you get when you're starting a program. People just kind of like, they don't give you the easy things. They, they send you the hardest cases of aviation. We have a sigmoid esophagus, we have an achalasia for 20 or 30 years. And it's like 85 years old. And it's like, okay, here you go. Can you do it or not? You know, and, and, and that was one of the things that I, I really learned about building a program is that you just have to step out of your comfort zone. You're not going to get the perfect, you know, 35 year old person with achalasia for two months with a perfectly straight tubular esophagus, you know, right. um, it's not going to be like that. You have to step out of your comfort zone and do these cases. Yeah, and, and you got to be adaptable too, right? I think, I think the yep. thing is that, um, you know, a lot of, the, I've had people who refer patients, you know, and, and they kind of put this fund up that they want everything done perfectly and they don't want their patient harm. But reality is most guys, when they can't do something, they just want someone to take care of it and yep. they want you to try, you know, even if you get down there and aren't successful or you realize it's not possible, at least you made the attempt and that goes a long way in building the practice because they know that this is someone that I can send someone to who's willing to listen and willing to look into it and willing to try, you know, and that's, I think goes a long way as well. Even if you're not successful in building the first case or the second case, you know, but I, I think it's important to be saying yes to taking on and understanding that you have to take a bunch of the hard stuff to get the easy stuff. So that's yes, exactly. No. And then, you know, so after that, those worked out fine. 
Um, you know, I really started to hustle. The word got out that I was doing them in Miami. They didn't have to refer to Orlando or Gainesville anymore. You know, the outcomes were good. Uh, right. and, and then it, things just kind of, uh, you know, spiraled in a good way. Um, but it was so important, you know, to really just keep in touch with the referring providers, going out of my way to text them, to let them know everything was going on. And then right. eventually, eventually it became easier. And I got those cases, those easy cases, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and, and now, you know, we've done over 100 ESD, uh, you know, poem and cheap poem combined cases. Um, so, you know, things are, are going well. And I think we have a good system at this point. That's awesome. So when, what year were, or what was your first case? Was that January 21 or was it? That was April 21 was my first okay. one. And yeah. still four weeks in, in, in the Prague. In Prague, in, yeah. in October, November 20. So it took me a good five months before yeah. I got the case, you know, and that was practicing. That was a little, that was a little bit of a, you know, kind of like a, a low period because I had all this training and wanted to do it, but I was nervous to do it. But I also, you know, I was, that that's the reality. It's like, you got to get the cases. No one's done it here before. Right, right. You got to yeah. find the way to do it. No, that's, that's amazing. I, but I think the most important part of your um, procedure, I mean, of your success in building the problem is actually the fact that your wife was willing to let you go when she was 30 weeks pregnant, you know? So I, I think that, that I mean, I said, in, I did a podcast uh, at the very beginning when I started this about, you know, applying to interventional fellowship. And in, in that, I made a point that a lot of people, you know, your program is only a year long. So a lot of times if your spouse is working, they may not go with you, your significant other. They may say, we'll just do the long distance thing for a year. And and so it's really important. And, and I say it kind of jokingly, but it's true is you do need that family support in addition to your chief and your university and your practice. I mean, you, you need Ali to be able to say, hey, this is okay, because that's that's actually pretty admirable. So how, you know, how tough yeah. is mean, so. right, yeah. <laughs> Is she a physician as well? She's a urologist, you know, oh, so okay. she, um, she gets it, you know. So you guys have the perineum covered, it looks like. <laughs> you got it all covered. <laughs> so um, what, do you, what do you recommend to, you know, your fellows now who have an interest? Obviously, you're able to mentor them to a degree. Yeah. Uh, but are you telling them that you know, now that you've been uh, almost two years, almost fully two years into this, are you feeling like they're getting enough experience with you to be able to practice third space slash poem independently? Or do you still encourage them to seek additional training opportunities after fourth year? Yeah. So, I, so it's almost three years now. Um, well, yeah. And yeah. Yeah. But um, I, I'm just, you know, but, but, but you're right. So I think that my fellow this year is going to be able to do poem independently. Mm -hmm. uh, because we're really working towards that because that's what her her job wants and my fellow last year it wasn't his priority to do it so we didn't i didn't we didn't push it as much so you know during the cases i i really try to get her to do more and 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 kind of uh and we're doing more pig labs and things like that you know so but with the caveat that i you know i think that i would like to be there for her first few cases to proctor her right. doing them in the, in the hospital and kind of do it the same way i did yeah um, yeah i think you know, so much of this procedure and so poem and cheap poem as well. So much of the value in it is you can get by watching. And so yeah. the cognitive part of it is so important. It's, and so I like to do it. And, and we talk through, you know, where is the posterior? Where is the anterior side? Basic stuff to start. And then eventually we get, oh, do you think that myotomy is good enough? Is that full thickness? Are we through the GE junction? How do we tell we're at the GE junction? Right. Um, what are we going to do in this situation? And, and those kind of cognitive aspects of it are really important because if you have the technical skill, but you don't know how far to cut, you don't know how to deal with the consequences. We have a mucosotomy, how we're going to deal with that. If we go too far down, what what is that structure we're looking at? Oh, that, that's the diaphragm, you know, things like that. Um, you know, you 
you know, and then the experience of maybe having complications, seeing what happens to the patient afterwards. These are all things that you can do when you when you do an advanced gear and you do, you know, 40 or 50, you're exposed to 40 or 50 poems. So that was, um, I think that's, that's a really important part of it. No, absolutely. And, and you know, I think, um, you know, I specifically for these type of third space procedures and, you know, any anything that we do that's beyond or inter, anything that's interventional, I think it, it can't be overstated uh, how much spending time learning these procedures and actually seeing the post and uh, pre-care is helpful. I mean, I, 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 I have a lot of people who do EUS that, you know, maybe went somewhere and watched someone for a month and they start doing it. And, you know, that has always been a problem for me is that, you know, you, you don't get to manage those patients afterwards, but I can't even imagine doing that in something as advanced as uh, a, a third space endoscopy or, or something even more than that. So, yeah. I think it's really important. But do, do you see the future of interventional? And, and I ask everybody who I've interviewed this question when third space or endoscopic oncology or any of these things come up, do you see this being a part of interventional endoscopy fellowship moving forward? Or do you see this being kind of like a subspecialty interventional fellowship? Like, what do you see the future of training looking like in five years from now when all these new procedures like bariatrics and oncology yeah. and third space come out, you know? So, yeah, you know, kind of before my thought was that you really need to have an extra fellowship to learn this sort of stuff because, you know, you can't teach it all in one year. You can't teach ERCP, EUS, all MSD. But now there's so many people that are kind of, there's all these different opportunities to get training, all these different pathways. And right. a lot of young guys are, and women are, are doing poems and trying to learn poem and cheat poem and ESD and, and they're hungry and they want to do it. And so I think there's so many people doing it that it's really getting diluted. And yeah, it's, it's hard, honestly, to do good quality poem, just like ERCP, when you don't do that, maybe we do like five a year, you know, no, absolutely. So I, I think it's going to get, you know, it, it, it might get reconsolidated, you know, a, a, but I don't think that everyone is going to be able to do it unless you're at a, kind of a high volume referral center. Yeah. And, and, and I, I actually agree with you completely on that because um, like, I just talked about the Phoenix uh, experience here. You know, we have Mayo Clinic up North where right. we have Norio, uh, there and we have um, a, a, a physician named Christopher uh, Patea or Theodore Patea. He's um, he's he learned poem probably he was one of Stavros's fellows and I think he learned poem five or six seven years ago something like that. He did his first one and now he's done about two hundred in the last few years and yeah. uh, or close to that. I, I don't call me on the numbers, but the point is that you know Phoenix is the fifth or sixth largest metro in the U.S. And we do have a couple of new guys who moved into town that are doing poem, a couple of people who are interviewing for jobs that want to do it. But there's just, and I know there's more indications than aclasia, but there's just so many aclasia people in the world. And is it really smart? And I think about myself, like, do I want to learn poem now in my career? And yes, it's a cool procedure, but if my mom and dad needed it, or if my brother needed it or something, would I do it myself? Or would I send that to Nori or Chris? And the answer is, to me is pretty obvious what I would do. And so if I don't feel comfortable doing it on my family member, what, what what am I doing? Just kind of dabbling in it when it might take me three to four hours when I've got a guy who can probably do it in 30 to 45 minutes or even, you know, right around that effort. So I, I think the point is well taken. Not everyone's going to do it. And so that reason, I think we probably are going to end up in a situation where maybe interventional, if you get enough EUS and ERCP in a program, you do it for six months. And then the next six months you spend focusing on that subspecialty I mean, what is it third space is it advanced tissue resection is it endohepatology or endobariatrics you know and i think that's kind of what i envision happening but 
more to be seen, I guess. It's it's exciting time. So Yeah, no, we'll see how it plays out. You know, hopefully everyone that does it will go through the process, will really feel comfortable doing get adequate training. But you know, all the, the data we have about poem that ninety five to hundred percent success rate, you know, it's all predicated on high volume center of people that are doing this a lot. Right. You know? And and a lot of times even I'm second guessing myself is my myotomy far up. Is that really the G junction right. after having, you know, done this many of them? And so I can only imagine if you've only doing your first five, you know, versus someone who's done several hundred, you know, how much more confident you are. And so we'll see if the outcomes end up being worse in the community than not. I don't know. Maybe they won't. Maybe they will. But we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, absolutely. And then and also just another kind of maybe putting on the the crystal ball. Do you see like in the future, the practice of EPOM or GPOM being more of your kind of bread and butter as you as this program advances or as more people start doing these procedures? Yeah, that's a good. You know, actually, my first year doing it, I did a lot more G palm than E palm because E palm was so you know achalasia. Like you said, there's only so much of it to go around, and and these patients, um, you know, we had to find them. With G palm, everyone, you know, our clinic is full of gastroparesis. You know, right. it was so easy to find these patients that we you know met our criteria, which was medically refractory gastroparesis. Um, you know that that didn't have pain predominant symptoms and. And they didn't have evidence of real pangeitis motility. And, um, you know, as we started doing G-Palm, we realized that, you know, it's almost, you know, the, the outcomes really aren't as great, you know, as E-Palm, there's about 70% or so is a success rate. No matter what we study, we can't figure out whether it's um, diabetic or post-surgical or, or idiopathic that does best. But, you know, I think we do know based on the sham control trial in, in gut that I was part of and that Dr. Martinik actually did that it, it does work. You know, in the right patient, right. clearly it works, um, but you just have to get the right patient. So I think that G Palm, I don't think it's going anywhere. You know, it definitely works. And the way I kind of look at it now is, if you have medically refractory gastroparesis, you know, you can't take Reglan, and maybe ideally you have objective evidence of pyloric dysfunction by an endoflip or something like that. Mm-hmm. Give it a try. You know, I think um, a lot of us are liberalizing our criteria a little bit because it's safe. It really is safe. Yeah. Uh, you know, as someone who's done really, comp- I've done ones with someone who's had like 40 Botox injections before. I've had like, you know, mucosotomies up top. I've, ha- I've had full thickness, you know, myotomies. And it's always, they end up really fine. It's really kind of a generous area. You know, it's kind yeah. of forgiving. So um, I think the worst case, it just, it just doesn't work. Um, right. It's, yeah, it seems like a safer location, you know, for right, right. that kind of intervention as well. So, you know, especially how thick that area is. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, okay. So we, yeah, no, that, that's all that's fascinating. So talk a little bit more, if you don't mind, um, not just about the G-Pone, but just uh, now that you're the system director as well, kind of how are you going about, number one, how do you go from, you know, being an advanced attending in Seattle to taking over for the system? Yeah. That kind of you know, briefly that pathway and how are you growing your program now? Where are you guys today as a, as a unit and as a department? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, it's all about opportunity, I think, and being in the right place at the right time. And so when I was in Seattle, um, I was at the, I was fortunate to be around some really fantastic advanced endoscopists, you know, Shannon Arati, Andy Ross, Joanna Lott, Dick Kazarek, these people were all really great and they are mentors to me, but I was kind of the, I mean, I was a new guy and I was in the community yeah. hospital a lot. And, um, you know, I wasn't the one that was being referred patients to. I was kind of like sixth or seventh in line for the ERCP. And so there's no way I was going to get to be doing third space stuff there. Um, 
And then, you know, my wife was with her fellowship there as well in urogynecology, and then she finished. And my hope was that I would kind of become more uh, ingrained in the core group at Virginia Mason. But we also needed to go somewhere where they could hire both of us. And, and, and it didn't seem like there was an opportunity for her to stay. And so we kind of did the search, ended up in Miami. And we'd never really visited before, except that my wife had been here for a bachelorette. And that was it, you know, <laughs> we just kind of took the plunge uh, and we loved it. But I was lucky enough to get get to this pro this program was not as developed as Virginia Mason. It was not as up as Columbia or Mount Sinai or anywhere I had been. Right, it was right. kind of practicing advanced endoscopy, kind of like a, a private practice type model as opposed to an academic model. Um, they weren't publishing a lot. They didn't have a national reputation. Um, and I saw it as a real opportunity, you know, but but we did have a big cancer center. We did do a lot of complicated stuff, but no one knew that we were doing this stuff. It, and within Miami, University of Miami is really the only academic shop in town. There's other health systems, but none of them have fellows or, or residents, and they're not really kind of on the academic track in publishing. So I basically got here, and I was kind of, you know, the third person here. Um, and then the other two kind of left. They looked for other opportunities. There were certain things that frustrated them here about Miami. And all of a sudden, I was the most senior person. And I, I had this drive to really grow the program and I was doing all the third space stuff. I was you know, tweeting a lot. I was growing our national reputation. I was trying to publish right. and I got some, you know, attention from people and I started making friends with people in the eventual community. People knew who I was and that in turn shed light on Miami that people really didn't even know we had a program before. And that allowed me to recruit some people. And then at that point, you know, I think our chief had enough confidence in me to First, make me director of advanced endoscopy, and then eventually assume the role of system-wide director. And, you know, I, I will say that um, in order to to kind of make those leaps for yourself, you really need to advocate for yourself as well. And, and if you think you're ready for something, you need to ask for it, right. um, you know, and, and no one's just going to hand you things unless you advocate and ask for yourself. So I, I said that I wanted to do this. These are my plans. And they said, well, I think that sounds great and that you'd be a great leader for our, for us from this perspective. And that gave me, having these positions gave me the clout to recruit people a little more seriously and, and, and you know, reach out to people and, and, you know, arrange, you know, dinners in the evenings for the Miami-wide advanced endoscopy people to show them what we were doing. Right. Um, you know, and that's kind of ways that we're now I'm focused on, on the outward growth of the program. You know, I think we're kind of maxed out with your internal referrals, but we have a lot to grow in terms of outside referrals. So besides the third space stuff people send to us, but the US ERC people, you know, really trying to build that up. Yeah. Everything but, out, yeah, go ahead. No, sorry, that's just to say that's just the bread and butter for an advanced program is to have that volume and you know, the rest is great stuff, fun stuff, but you know, it's like we say in GI, colonoscopy pays the bills for the most part. EUS will pay the bills for an advanced end endoscopy program, you know, for the most part. Yeah, exactly. No, you know, we're, we do high volume stuff, but we're, you know, all my ERCPs are Tyler strictures, you know, whereas I never get the stone cases and, and you know, they, we don't have a system where those come into University of Miami. They all get taken care of by the community, but, um, you know, like to, to grow that and let people know we, we do that stuff too. And, I have to give credit to, you know, my, my partners, Dr. Bala, Dr. Kumar, Dr. Parkin, um, you know, they've, we really have just such a fantastic dynamic between us that I've always hoped that we would have, you know, right. just, we all go into each other's rooms, you know, what do you got today? We all share the call. We're all there for each other. Right. Uh, what do you think of this? And that's made us all better. You 
Yeah. No, the rising tide raises all boats, I guess is what they say. But yeah, no, that's that's amazing. And I, I you know, from my experience as well, I think having uh, colleagues and partners that you get along with well, that are willing to, you know, share the burden of call and whatnot with you, it's always, it makes it a much more collegial, fun environment than you grow that program together. So that, that's amazing. Yeah. And you guys are four four uh, people in the interventional department right now at the university. We're actually we, we're five. Uh, we hired one of our former fellows, so we have a health system. We have University of Miami at Jackson. So between the two hospitals, there's five of us, and we're looking to hire another. So. Very cool. So if anyone listening is looking for a job, you know where to apply. <laughs> if you like warm weather, so yeah. Uh, okay. Well, hey, Sunil, it's been great uh, talking to you. I really appreciate your time. I know it's uh, late over there, so thanks for cutting out, uh, you know, some time for me. Um, you know, um, just want to thank you. And also, you know, one thing that we say at the end of this uh, podcast for everybody, you know, join your societies, ASGE, fight, whatever it is that you're uh, passionate about, because that's going to help grow your practice as well as the GI community. And um, I also end off with the PSA about mental health. If there's anybody out there struggling, reach out um, to your local 800 number or other physicians and just get some help before, you know, things get too stressful for you. But once again, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to, uh, oh, one more thing I was going to ask you, are you uh, teaching at any courses or anything coming up uh, in the, in the near future, anything that you want to, you know, put out there for the uh, community to know about? Um, no, well, you know, we're, we're in the process of planning our, our first kind of Miami advanced endoscopy course. So. Very cool. Wait, when do you envision that happening? Uh, it'll probably be in the winter. Like it's a nice time to, for people to, to come to Miami. Uh, it may not be this year, maybe a, a year from now, but I think that's, uh, you keep an eye out for that. Yeah, no, then those are, those are hard to plan. I mean, I, I have a few friends that have planned some courses and it's not easy, man. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess it is the winter now, but I don't even think about it because it's uh, <laughs> beautiful and 80 degrees in Miami. But, uh, but you got in Vancouver right now. Phoenix, yeah. <laughs> but no, thank you so much for having me. It was a real absolute pleasure. I love talking about advanced endoscopy, and we love to talking to you and talk for hours, I'm sure. But. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. This, this, that's a, one of the reasons to do this podcast is not only, you know, it's, it's to get to meet people. And I, you know, I, I like talking about the stuff as well. And, you know, honestly, I'm a chatterbox. I could go on for days and talk about stuff, but we all have stuff to do. So, <laughs> but yeah, I, I hope, you know, um, thank you again. And uh, all right. So, and thank you, everybody. That's our episode of Interventional Endorsements Podcast. And uh, stay tuned for the next one in the next few weeks.